How did the movie Fire lead to a moral panic in the late 1990s in India? In what ways do we see the emergence of a new queer cinema in the 20th century? And how did Rituparna Ghosh's legacy impact cinema in India? Hi, this is Shrishti and you're listening to In Perspective, the Swaddles podcast series where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society and culture. In this episode, we're taking you back to a conversation from January 2021, where we spoke to pioneering media studies scholar and documentary filmmaker, Dr. Shohini Ghosh. To start off with, we wanted to ask you about media censorship, which is one very important aspect of your work. And media censorship is often informed by this notion that the media that people consumes has a direct and harmful impact on their behavior. Could you talk about where this notion comes from and what are the problems with conceiving of media impact and harm in this way? Right. This, of course, is very much uh, a theory of the, the pre-digital age that, uh, you know, whatever you see, you will become or whatever you see will influence what you're thinking. And it's actually a very old idea. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it was born in the 1940s and 50s and then started getting challenged later in the 70s and the 80s by the very schools that had actually propounded this. Uh, you know, the idea that if you saw something, you know, your behavior would change accordingly. And that it was called the hypodermic needle model, which is like you see something and you know you will behave in exactly that same way. Now, this is this kind of conclusion is exactly the reverse of what we understand from cultural studies and film studies, which is that you know you have a text, and the text is, you know, as scholars would say, essentially ambivalent, uh, which doesn't mean that it is ambiguous. It means it is essentially ambivalent in that. Different people will read it differently. Different people will come away with different kinds of meanings. And, and behavior change is actually not something that is very easily achieved. It's, it happens in a complex environment of many, many uh, you know, dispositions and many predispositions and uh, you know, complex engagement. So it's not very easy. So in some ways, this idea that the media immediately impacts on your behavior has now been, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, defeated by theory. There is absolutely no evidence to prove that that it happens, uh, because the manner in which we engage with the media is deeply complex. And uh, even though we may largely agree, even very like-minded people, we may broadly agree. But as you know, I guess from your own experience, or even with chatting with your friends. There are films that your friends will like, you will not like, you'll have an argument, you know, or, or that you may even change your own mind. You know, you may start off by not liking it and then you may decide that, well, actually, it's not so bad. I mean, it happens to me all the time. You know, my first response is something uh, Then I keep thinking about it. And I say, if I'm thinking about it, then there must be something in it that has stayed with me. And eventually I find that I like it so much that I'm writing about it or something like that. So, um it's not a very unilinear, homogenous manner in which you know uh, impact happens, and therefore uh, we have to have a more complicated notion of harm, um, you know, and a complicated notion of images. So otherwise, we uh, image blaming is the easiest thing to do, uh, which is why the government will have uh, you know a little. Uh, line that says smoking is injurious to health or smoking causes cancer. Now it's not been injurious to health, it, it causes cancer. And they feel that they've done their job. Uh, I mean, people are not going to see that line and stop smoking, but it becomes an easy way. And then whenever something happens, it's also equally easy to say, well, you know, the films are responsible for it. And that has happened many times, particularly, I mean, throughout, you know, when there is some kind of a violence that breaks out, uh, you know, whether in the US or whether in India, uh, people will come, you know, even educationists will often come and say, oh, it's because of cinema. Or the police will come and say it's because of the terrible impact that cinema is having, because cinema is violent. You know, uh, the people are learning to be violent when it's perhaps, you know, cinema is always in conversation with society. Uh, you know, a cinema won't be violent if the society is not violent. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a kind of a very simplified argument that I guess makes people feel good because uh, bringing about social change in the real world is far more complicated than just condemning an image 
and blame that image and say, well, this is responsible. Absolutely. I'm actually going to take up one of the, you know, um, aspects where we see it, which puts me in a dilemma and I'm, which, which I'm sure which many of the young yeah. feminists or, or yeah. listening to the podcast might also feel the same way, which is, you know, when you have this conversation around the impact that Bollywood has on sexual harassment and on yeah. stalking and on yeah. uh, behaviors in like romantic yeah. relationships. And but what, what do you think about that? And when we think about this idea that, that, you know, media impact is exaggerated, how do we look at it vis-a-vis that sort of argument? You know, media impact, I, w- I won't say there's no media impact, because if I said that, then why would I make tales of the night fairies? You know, why would I try to persuade people? Uh, the point to make is that media effect or media consequences are not predictable. They depend as much on, on the person as, uh, you know, the image. So me, uh, how you respond to an image depends very much on you as a person as well, you know, and what you think. I mean, if you get a message saying, please go and lynch so-and-so because that so-and-so has uh, done something, will you respond uh, to that? You won't, but somebody else might. So there's a lot that your own predisposition has to do with it. And I think that we are now in a very complex digital ecology, uh, you know, where even the information that we get is maybe on our smartphone and that information can shape our notion about the world. So the idea of harm has become very complex, but I think Bollywood has very unfairly been charged uh, with these ideas. And I think that you know, any popular industry or any popular culture will be as progressive or regressive as the society in which it lives. Moreover, uh, we don't all share the same ideas of progression and regression. Uh, I have much less problem with the item numbers than many people have. Uh, you know, I have always loved the cabarets in, in Bombay cinema. I've loved Helen. And I see these item numbers as a continuation of that tradition. And I'm one, I think it's wonderful that the heroines do that. Because at that time, if you remember, uh, it would be the vamp who would do the cabaret. The heroine would be very chaste in a sari and all that. But she would also move into the domain of the vamp if she was drunk or she had a plan in mind or something like that. So we also have loved our heroines doing those very transgressive things, even though the narrative would find an excuse for her. And that has continued. This whole idea of the masquerade, for instance, in the 90s, Choli Ke Piche Kya Hai. You know, it's a, it's a heroine uh, Madhuri, played by Madhuri Dixit in a film like Khalnai. And her name is Ganga. She is engaged to a man called Ram. It doesn't get purer than that. And she has to sing Choli Ke Piche. So what do you do? You create a situation in the narrative where she's a Tawaif. And why is she a Tawaif? Because she's gone there to catch the Khalnai, who's the villain that is Sanjay Dutt. And therefore, in order to catch him, why, of course, she has to go and move in with him, we don't know, except for the pleasures of the narrative. So the most transgressive moments happen when she is pretending to be a Tawaif. Now, if I'm not familiar with those conventions of Bombay cinema, which have continued from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s to the 90s, then for me, it'll be, oh, my God, this is so terribly demeaning to me. And I would say absolutely not. It is women asserting their sexuality. And I, I, for me, that's a very welcome change. Of course, you know, you and I will have our own preferences. That kind is absolutely fine. But to say that item numbers, you know, all the women who are doing it, they are demeaning themselves. No, these are very professional women who know exactly what they're doing. And, uh, they're, and, and it is also assuming that women who are respectably dressed cannot be uh, you know, making bad decisions. So this whole focus on women uh, who are kind of dressed in a transgressive manner, uh, I think the focus on them, this is as bad as men saying that you get sexually harassed because, you know, of the clothes that you wear. So we feminists have to be very careful that we do not repeat that. Absolutely. And I think it's very interesting that we'd actually spoken to Dr. Ranjani Mazumdar before this, the previous interview, and we discussed this shift from yes. the heroine and the vamp. That's right. And, and, like and he's also written before. very well on that shift. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, and I think like you said, it's, it's complicated and it reflects yeah. society and the different aspects of it. And it really, yeah. you know, depends on how an individual's reaction or response yeah. to it is very different. That's and right. I think you brought up Choli Ke Piche yourself and that takes me to our next question, which is actually about the censorship of 
uh, song lyrics, photo shoots, and ad campaigns on the grounds of quote unquote obscenity and indecency, which we saw a lot in late twentieth century India. It's something in the nineties, yes, yeah. About yeah. Um, now. Why did we see this kind of censorship? Or could you tell us a little bit about that for a lot of people who would not be familiar with some of the debates around these? In the 90s, we saw this, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, d- debate resurfacing around obscenity vulgarity. And the reason it happened at that time, uh, one, of course, first point, I must say that all my friends who work in the 40s and the 50s, they will remind me that these debates were already there. Uh, But what is new about the 90s? What is new about the 90s is the liberalization of the economy, the opening of the skies, and the satellite television coming, and suddenly images that used to play in the cinema hall are in your homes. So people are, oh my God, I mean, you know, uh, now my kids are going to be watching the woman who works in my house, and that's the big dread that the so-called great unwashed will watch all this and they will become bad. Uh, whereas we middle-class people are going to be so, because we are so inured by our education and by our culture that we will not be affected by any of this. And I often ask this question, I used to, you know, when I used to do these workshops on direct impact, et cetera. And I would say, can you raise your hand and tell me one crime, criminal act that you have done uh, after watching a film? And nobody would raise their hands because they haven't done it. But they always imagine that somebody out there who's living in the slums, who's poorer than I am, who is less fortunate than I am, will be performing that. And that is entirely a wrong assumption. And if those people lead more violent lives, it's because they live in more violent environments and not like our privileged environments in which we can actually stay away from violence. So, but having said that, to just go back to the idea that when this satellite explosion happened, it was incredible. Every possible organization wanted to ban Bombay cinema and and Choli Kipiche became this thing whether it's the National Human Rights Com- uh, you know, Commission, whether it was the, uh, the, the National uh, uh, Women's Commission. And, and this is why I wrote the essay, The Troubled Existence of Sex and Sexuality, is because the feminists joined in. So the feminists were often having a problem with the same images that the right-wing forces were uh, you know, having. And, that, uh, you know, and, and basically, what is it? It is actually a problem with a certain kind of explicit sexuality being expressed. And again, this shift where the, you know, the transgressive moves are moving away from the body of the vamp to the body of the, the heroine. And once I remember Ranjini and I were together, uh, had gone to, I think, Miranda House or someplace where we were having this conversation. And uh, of course, it was very contested to have that conversation at that time. And one of the teachers said, but uh, you see, the danger is precisely this she doesn't have to be a vamp in order to do that. So the, this explosion in uh, the debates around obscenity, vulgarity, and this great moral panic that happened in the 90s, uh, that, a moral panic that turned later and became a kind of an interesting debate even among feminists. But initially, it was this complete uh, panic where uh, there were also petitions in the court uh, to stop satellite broadcast. So how do you think that, you know, social media and OTT platforms, have they changed even state conceptions of obscenity or have they pushed the boundaries in any way? You know, I do think that... um, uh, and this is something I discovered when I was going to different institutions and places with my film, Tales of the Night Fairies, perhaps the only feature-length independent film I've made. But I traveled very extensively with it in different schools and colleges and young people. And I realized one thing. I mean, when I made the film, uh, the, the, I didn't know one other feminist who was going to support me on this. You know, It was such a contentious issue among feminists that that they all wanted abolition of sex work. And even now that lobby is extremely strong. So talking about sex workers' rights was like getting into some kind of a vicious fight. And my whole attempt to make the film was to have the voice of the sex workers there and the sex workers themselves explaining why they don't have a problem with this profession. Uh, And I don't see why uh, anybody in any profession should not represent themselves. I mean, we don't take decisions on behalf of doctors or teachers. So why should we take the decisions on behalf of them? 
So, but as I traveled with the film to different places, I realized one thing, and I realized that people were much more open to issues of uh, dealing with sex work and sexuality than with, say, issues of caste and communalism. Uh, you know, somewhere they were much more open to that. I ha have no reason why that is the case. Perhaps it could be the fact that it affected affects their lives more directly. Uh, so when it came to issues of LGBT sexuality or, uh, you know, t uh, sex work, uh, young people tended to be much more open about that. And I think the most remarkable shift that we have seen, I mean, I think there are still a great deal of moralism in many of the feminist interventions now, even when it comes to something like the item girl. But I think the place where we have seen the most tremendous shift is the one on queer sexuality. Uh, when we were students, uh, you know, in the early 80s, uh, there was no question of having this kind of a conversation either in the public domain or in the classroom or wherever uh, it would be always being spoken about in hushed whispers. Uh, with, a, uh, you know, with a lot of stigma attached to those about whom conversation was being had. And that uh, change in the last 30 years to me is tremendously dramatic. I don't think I have seen any uh, a change in anything else other than that. So, of course, there are many, uh, you know, many of people will look at Kicholi Ke Piche Kya Hai and say, oh my God, I can't believe there's been a controversy over this. But then they may just pick up another song uh, from Dabang and say, but you know, this is very bad. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's all very uh, subjective. So I think that uh, there have been, uh, you know, moves forward. But I think the other thing I have realized having lived you know, for quite a long time is that I now realize that uh, you need to keep going back to the basics because people forget, you know, you, we have all gone through a certain trajectory and I think it is important for people to go back. So I keep referring back to the 90s because I think it's a very important moment where a lot of the issues that are now coming up had also come up at that time. But what has shifted now, which is the second part of your question, is that this, the way the media works now is very, very complex uh, because our own lives have got embedded in the media. You know, even when you're, you're doing Instagram or whatever the way we communicate, so the whole ecology has changed in such a way that we even now fail to quite understand exactly how it works. And part of the reason is because it is working in silos. Now, if you were to uh, see, uh, you know, I've talked about how the film Fire that was released in Canada in 1996 came to India in 1998, um, allowed for uh, what I would call the first public debate. Uh, in post-independent India on homosexuality. And that is perhaps because people were reading the same newspapers or, you know, uh, newspapers were actually very central to that debate. If you, uh, because I have kept all my clippings from that time, then if you look at it, you'll find that the major debates are happening in times of India and sometimes on all, all the major uh, in newspapers and magazines are talking about it. I'm not sure that we have that kind of a constituency where we are all reading the same thing. We have become a very fragmented constituency, sometimes very, very caught up in our own silos, very delighted that we have a lot of following, uh, but realizing that there are others who are not even listening to what we are saying and that they are having a completely different debate. And this is something that we still have to figure out how to engage with. Because I think even politically, when you do you know, political uh, campaigns and all that, that becomes a very big issue. And it is likely to become. So it's a, we are now living in a very different moment. Absolutely. Um, I think that's fascinating. And then like you said, it, it's important to always go back to the basics in, yeah. in moments like these to actually think about To have it. an historical sense of, uh, because otherwise, you know, you'll just see something and say, oh, wow, this is very new. Uh, whereas maybe it's not that new. I mean, maybe some things about uh, about it are new, but there has been a whole history to something like that. So uh, I think it's really important for all of us to have a sense of history in what we do. Uh, and we are going through a period where we are being asked to be a historical. So all the more reason <laughs> we return to history. Absolutely. 
And um, I think you'd also mentioned, ta- like, you know, just the one way in which we've evolved is in like the discourses around queer sexuality, especially amongst the youth. And I have to mention that, and hopefully some of the listeners who haven't watched the film can go and watch yeah. it, but that, you know, it really shifted my perspective because I had as a, like an adolescent interned at like um, Apnea, which is like not exactly very pro-sex worker, but has a different approach. I didn't even know about those debates, you know? And then when I watched your movie is when it really shifted my perspective and exposed me to, to you know, um, an entirely new and, and I think very empowered way of thinking. So um, anyone who's listening to this who hasn't watched the film, do go and check out Tales of the Night Fairies. I don't know if it's publicly available though, is it? You know, publicly? somebody put it on YouTube. Okay, okay. Somebody uh, and, yeah, and then I'm very okay with anybody showing it, distributing it, and it's like, it belongs to everybody. <laughs> That's as, long as, as long as they're not editing to, it, it up to make it into something it is not. Yeah. So as long as the film is in its entirety and it uh, has the views that are expressed in it, the film is yours. Please use it in the way that you like. Absolutely. And um, I think speaking about this debate about, uh, you know, obscenity and sexuality, and we started with the 90s and what satellite television did to that. And then another important sort of moment that you've written about is... Um, the 2009 ban of the Savita Bhabhi website and the sort of debate between the detractors and the supporters there. Now, what what was that debate like and what does that tell us about our attitudes towards pornography and sex and sexuality in India? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Savita Bhabhi moment, I think, was quite an important moment because suddenly, uh, uh, you know, and the people that I were talking about it with and who were excited about it were women friends. You know, so it was the women who were disca- uh, you know, discussing Savita Bhabi and, uh, you know, she w- was this incredible toon character, uh, you know, doing all the things that a good wife is not supposed to do, which is uh, be non-monogamous, you know, have these uh, uh, one night stands and torrid sexual encounters uh, with random people. I mean, people that she's not even in love with. And uh, so completely turning upside down the idea of a good wife. Uh, and uh, the Bhabi has always been a kind of a interestingly erotic figure in Indian literature and cinema. You've seen it in, uh, uh, you know, at one end in a film like Charulata by Shotichit Rai, uh, which is uh, an amazing film. And then at a more playful level in Hamapke Haikon and a number of other films. And then you know that even outside the world of cinema and literature, there is always this discourse around the puppy, you know, the, uh, it's the, as, a, as, a, as a kind of an erotic figure. And I think the Savita Bhabi character really kind of, in, uh, you know, uh, encompassed that. And what actually made it more amusing for me is that uh, Savita Bhabi looked very much like uh, uh, those very devout women in Amar Chitra Katha comics but she only looked like them, but she didn't have to inherit their temperament. And so that in itself was actually quite uh, interesting and transgressive. And then, uh, you know, there was a decision to boycott that. Uh, Now, when I look back into the 2009 and I see the kind of debates that took place, uh, the kind of outrage that there was that, you know, Savita Bhabi should be banned. I wonder whether we are now living in a far more conservative uh, you know, uh, age, uh, or that's a, a, a kind of new moralism has come to rule us. And I worry that uh, this should not become a kind of a consensus that can be used to, say, regulate images on OTT platforms, etc. And I'm always a little bit concerned when people come up with uh, words uh, that put pornography in a uh, uh, a priori into a kind of a negative mold. So they'll say, oh, this is about poverty porn or this is about lifestyle porn. So the word porn becomes negative in itself. Now, what is pornography? Pornography is simply a genre. It is a genre of films that is used to, uh, you know, arouse sexual sensations, uh, you know, or sexual excitement. Uh, just as uh, spiritual material is used for religious upliftment, this is for sexual upliftment. And like all genres, you're free not to have anything to do with it. Uh, you know, there are so many genres like horrors and thrillers and drama and comedy. Just as we choose our own genres, we can do, uh, you know, we don't have to have a judgment around it. We don't like it, we don't see it. But what is interesting is that 
Uh, I, I'm not sure they do it anymore. I need to find out. But the India Today magazine used to do this sex survey across India. And uh, those were actually quite interesting because what we discovered over there is that how women watch pornography, it was breaking a lot of myths that we've had about pornography being only at the purview of men. But not only were women participating in these uh, surveys, but also talking about making pornography, you know, for each other uh, uh, or sometimes to be shared with close friends. So I think that there is a, a, a very sexualized constituency out there uh, but I think the fear of it becoming public has always been an anxiety for lots of people. And I worry that that anxiety may still be there. Uh, it's not entirely gone, even from the younger generation. Yeah, absolutely. I think it just takes different forms, like you're saying, yeah. like doxing or revenge porn. I think even the anxieties yeah. around it have increased in these different ways. Yes. Um, so that's fascinating. And I think I absolutely love that explanation of pornography like you did. And hopefully it'll resonate with, with a lot of people. Um, and you, you've sort of briefly mentioned um, FIRE when, when, uh, in one of the previous answers when we were talking about like public yes. discourse around um, queer sexuality. Um, so could you tell us about why the movie FIRE led to so much controversy and moral panic in the late 1990s? And how did it change the public discourse around women loving women in India? Yeah, fire is absolutely an incredible moment as far as I'm concerned. And uh, it uh, may not always have to do with the cinematic values. I mean, when I first saw it, I didn't think that it was, I was watching some great cinema, but I knew it was a great moment. And, uh, you know, and then I ended up writing a whole monograph on it. Uh, I think, what is interesting is the waste fire was also released. First, it was uh, shown in Canada. It took two years to travel and come to India. And in India, it was released both in English and in Hindi and across the country like a normal mainstream film. And that to me was astounding because you would see posters, uh, you know, across the city uh, where two women were occupying the diegetic space that were meant for the heterosexual couple. And that this was out there in the open, I think was incredible. And the film was passed without any cuts by the censor board. And Asha Parikh was at that time the chairperson of the censor board. And the film ran for two weeks very peacefully. And many of us actually went and saw it in the hall. And uh, sometimes people would walk out. I don't know whether you know they're embarrassed or outraged or what. But a lot of the time people sat there and would be silent. And even if it, you know, people started with a little bit of giggling and chuckling, they would all kind of quieten down. And then two weeks later, there were these groups that came and started vandalizing the halls and attacking it. And then the film was all about an insult to marriage, insult to Hinduism, etc. And then all hell broke loose. And then there was a demand, a rather unprecedented demand, to send the film back to get a censor certificate. And uh, thankfully, uh, you know, and admirably, the censor board to stood its ground and sent it back without any cuts. And so, whereas a certain uh, in in certain regional censor boards made, you know, changed the name of Radha and Sita to Nita or something else. Uh, apart from that, uh, the main censor board actually didn't censor the film. I can see why people would be upset with it because this was the time when people were, you know, uh, they were not used to the idea of talking about same-sex love openly like we do now. And suddenly you have a mainstream film with a very visible senior respected actress and a new actress doing all this. And to the great, uh, you know, um, credit of Deepa Mehta, uh, the film is not at all... Uh, trying to say, oh, these women are in love, but we don't know what they're doing in bed, you know? Because this is always the big question, what do women do when they're in bed? And uh, th that's very explicit in the film, you know, what they do when they're in bed. So it's, uh, I think that was very brave, you know? It was incredibly brave. Uh, the other thing that the film does, uh, which I, for which I think the film, and of course, as I said, it started the first public debate. And even if you were to see just my own library of newspaper clippings, it's like this big, you know. So everybody was participating in that in that debate, and it allowed uh, it gave a certain visibility also to LGBT activism. When the these groups attacked Regal Cinema, 
there was a counter protest in front of Regal Cinema by a lot of us. And uh, there were que queer groups and people who stood for freedom of speech and expression. It was a little bit uncomfortable also because people were like, oh my God, look at these lesbians, they're holding placards because it was also a very conflicted space where a lot of very so-called progressive people would have liked lesbians and uh, gay men to be in the closet. You, we will talk about the issue in an abstract way, but don't come and tell us that you're gay or don't carry a placard. And that continued for a long time. I mean, you know, there was this whole thing that you can't be part of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the women's uh, march if you're holding placards that say you're LGBT and all that I have actually written about in my book. So it was a moment of great churning, I think, for everybody, but it also gave visibility to the queer activist who nevertheless stood with it saying, you know, uh, being a lesbian is part of Indian heritage or whatever. So, you know, and all that. So people had to deal with that as well. So I think this coming together of these different forces was actually a very good thing. The other interesting thing that Fire did, and Gayatri Gopinath wrote very beautifully about it in her book, she talked, uh, she pointed out how fire actually allows for a slide between the homosocial and the homosexual. So here is the, the, here are the women doing very ordinary routine things like cooking and hanging clothes out to try or playing hopscotch or something. And then that becomes erotic. And thereby, it invites you to look at every other film you've seen before, which is like this. Now, if you, uh, you know, talk to the queer subcultures, you know, we would uh, look at films and say, you know, this is pretty queer. Uh, but others would say, but you know, aren't you reading too much into it? And we would say, but aren't you reading too less into it? This seems pretty clear to us. And very often we would, would discover later that we weren't always wrong uh, because there was this beautiful uh, uh, song in uh, Kamal Am uh, Amrohi's uh, uh, Razia Sultan, where there is a uh, song uh, between Hema Malini and Parveen Babi, and then they both disappear behind a feather. And there are these two women who are girls who are basically fanning them. They look at each other and they smile. And that, I mean, that was to my mind the first lesbian kiss on a mainstream film. And of course, we have talked about it, we've written about it, but the confirmation came. When in 2017, Hema Malini's authorized biography came out, where Kamal Amrohi's son talks about how his father wanted to show her as a bisexual because she was a bisexual woman. She was never, she never wanted to be called Sultana. She wanted to be called a Sultan, an emperor, emperor, not an em, uh, empress. And that that scene particularly was meant to convey that idea. So we were not wrong. So very often you will find that you are backed by authorial intention. And even if you are not, uh, that, uh, to my mind, that reading is kind of valid. So what FIRE did is by showing that, well, what you see as a kind of a homosocial kind of bonding may actually have something more than that. And that then, uh, there's a feminist scholar, a film scholar called Patricia White, who talks about the idea of retrospectatorship, that sometimes you know uh, something will happen and older texts will be thrown open for newer readings. And I think that's what FIRE did. By making that shift and that slide, uh, you know, like you remember the scene in the, the picnic sequence where the family has gone for a picnic. It's a you know, heterosexual family with a patriarch and a matriarch, and they're sitting there, and there is this younger sister-in-law who is pressing the feet of her uh, older sister-in-law who works so hard. And the husband says, please, iska seva karo. You know, that is your kartavya. And we know what's going on over there. The husbands don't. And that slide that, you know, what you see uh, may not be the way you always thought it was. I think that awareness was brought in by fire. And I think for that reason also, it's a very significant film. Absolutely. I think that's so fascinating uh, and something that a lot of people might not have thought about. Yeah. Um, and I think the Razia Sultan image has now become iconic on like all social media accounts, queer social yeah. media accounts, or just as something that people um, yes. keep sharing a lot, especially when you think about reading the subtext. Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking of cinema and the ways in which um, it has evolved when it comes to especially the depictions of queer sexuality, You've spoken about the emergence of a new queer cinema in 21st century India. So in what ways do we see this 
emergence and how does it displace conventional cinematic, cinematic codes of masculinity and femininity? Well, one, of course, is that, you know, in the late 80s and the early 2000s, we were all very concerned about visibility, that, you know, we were an invisible lot of people and we want to be seen. And I think that that visibility has been pretty much achieved, uh, even when you look at, you know, OTT platforms or, uh, you know, if you look at the internet. Now, uh, there's a very in important book that came out, uh, a collection of essays by Thomas Waugh and Brendan Ario, and the book is called I Confess. And what it argues is that the internet or the proliferation of the internet has made a third sexual revolution possible. And it is also very true that, you know, on streaming platforms, you see so many queer films that, you know, we would never have seen at some point, you know. And it, uh, the queer seems to have infiltrated every genre now, you know, whether it is drama, whether it's comedy, whether it's horror, whether it's thriller, the queer person is everywhere around. And the streaming platforms, not only bring you content from India, but content from across the world. Uh, you know, which is why, you know, at one time, the film festivals would do that for us, that, you know, we would see queer content in a film festival, but this is like everybody's festival, everybody has access to something like that. So now the question that we can ask, that having achieved a certain amount of visibility, and I think that a significant moment of that visibility is also when actors actually start playing queer roles. Now, uh, I also find it very interesting how Bollywood came out to the public uh, with, you know, so there were, uh, you know, these other films like uh, My Brother Nikhil and Shabnam Mossi. They were all kind of slightly niche films that were very uh, affirmatively, you know, showing a protagonist like that. But then you have your conventional Bombay cinema that has to be released across the country. And, uh, and, and that's a time before the OTT platforms that it has to release across the country, appeal to lots of people. So how do you do this? And I think the, the trope that Karan Johar uses again is the trope of misrecognition or the masquerade. You know, we talked about the masquerade and misrecognition. And he uses that in Kal Hona Ho where Kanta Ben, the Gujarati housekeeper, thinks that Saif and uh, Shah Rukh are having an affair. And when actually they're not, because they're interested in the, the women in the film. And uh, the people laugh at that moment. And it has always been a kind of mysterious moment because we don't know what they're laughing at. I mean, are you laughing at homosexuality? Are you laughing at homophobia? Are you laughing at the possibility that they are gay? Of course they are. Or are you laughing at the impossibility of their being gay? Oh, of course they can't. You know, so it's, it's not very clear. But what is very clear is that the homophobe is telling you how to read queerly. That this is a possibility. There is potential, there is promise in this. And you find a number of films kind of using that. And I always attribute the original idea to Bend It Like Beckham. Uh, Bend It Like Beckham where the two women and their two families are uh, trying to, you know, uh, the two families respond differently. So the, which of course, again, is the stereotype that the Indian family doesn't know what same-sex love is. So they think that Jules is a boy and they are very offended that she's actually going out with some boy without the family's permission. And then they all rest, uh, you know, peacefully when they realize that Jules is actually a girl. Whereas the mother, the English mother is absolutely frantic because she thinks her daughter is a lesbian. And, uh, and therefore, when she comes into the gate, crashes into the wedding and says, and throws the word lesbian at these people, the aunts are totally flummoxed. One of them says, but she's a Piscean, she's not a lesbian. And uh, somebody says that, but we are not Lebanese. So they don't even know what she's talking about. But in that process, you know, you have implied that that kind of intimacy could be read in a different way. And I think that's exactly what Karan Johar did in a you know, series of films and very many other films like Masti and all chose that route, you know, where they are making a suggestion. And uh, then in Dostana, you go one step forward where the homophobe actually becomes more homo-friendly. And then, of course, you have the films that he himself has made that are, you know, pretty openly queer. But now, having done that, and and of course, we have to take note of the fact that uh, with a range of films with people like Manoj Bajpai in Aligarh or Sonam Kapoor, uh, you know, they have all come out as playing explicitly gay characters or, you know, so, uh, so and, and the idea of the, 
the gay person inhabiting the star body is actually quite been an important shift, I feel. That whether it is Fawad Khan or whether it is Sonam Kapoor uh, or Ayushman Khurana, uh, they have no uh, problems playing, uh, you know, a gay character. And that itself to me is a big milestone in, in popular cinema. Now, having said that, uh, the larger, more interesting question that we can ask is that, what is a queer film? Is it only about uh, films which has queer characters? And I would say that no, because uh, I think the word queer is far more expansive and transgressive and cannot be contained by identities. So we are also moving towards a very identitarian kind of a thinking that, you know, this is my identity, this is my body. But I don't think desire and sexuality can be contained by the certitudes of identity. And therefore, something like Edil Hai Mushkil, you know, which is uh, again a, a Karan Johar film, but it is actually not about two queer people, but they choose a kind of a queer relationship of friendship over a sexual relationship. And, uh, you know, uh, Madhvi Menon has very beautifully written in her book on desire that sometimes the most intense relationship can come out of a relationship that has renounced sex. So, uh, or if you look at the manner in which um, uh, uh, Konkona Shen Sharma looks at her primary protagonist in Death in the Ganj, uh, a, a young man who has, is, is in a precarious situation because he does not fit into the masculinities that people around him imagine he should have. And that precarity to me is a queer precarity. And therefore to me, uh, that uh, too is something that, uh, because queer is also an aspiration. It is also about desires and it transcends the body and transcends identities. So I find it interesting to imagine the queer in that way. Uh, and if we uh, can move in that direction, you know, where we are not only looking at who is an authentic queer and, and that person has a right to talk about queerness, but look at it uh, as multifarious desires, as multifarious perhaps as the different permutations of gender and sexuality, uh, then we may actually come uh, see a lot of very exciting cinema. Absolutely. And, and I think those are two interpretations which people would definitely think about a lot and it should do from a death in the gunge. I never even interpreted it that way. But once you say it, it actually clicks. Yes. Um, and um, yeah, it was really fascinating to think that through. And like you said, not to become more identitarian, which is what we're yes. moving towards, but to think of it in a more expansive way. Yeah. And I think when we speak about queer cinema or queer conventions of cinema, I think it's impossible not to mention um, Ritu Porno Ghosh. Yes. Um, you've said that to you, um, Ritu Porno Ghosh remains the most important figure in the world of queer regional cinema. Um, in what ways did Ritu Porno's films and star persona make queer issues central to public debates in Bengal? It, he really single-handedly did that, we have to admit. You know, he made about 20 feature films. And that entire body of films uh, gave a centrality to the female protagonist. That, then, that, without certain exceptions in Bengali cinema of the 1980s, had completely gotten rid of. I mean, the, the female protagonist was either in the margins or was, um, you know, of not very much relevance, except for, as I said, barring a few exceptions. And at that time, you know, Ritu Pondo comes and brings this, his sensibility and his protagonist right at the center of the narrative. And the middle-class audiences actually keep going back to the cinema hall. So in some ways, he revived the economy of the Bengali, Bengal film industry. Uh, and people started going back to the cinema. People had stopped watching films. You know, people were watching it on video, but we would actually go to the halls and see Ritu's films. Um, and I have argued in one essay of mine that if you were to look at his entire body of films, you might argue that what he was doing was exploring different kinds of femininities in his films. And in his later films, particularly the four films in which he acted, 
uh, his own body becomes a site of experimentation of that kind of femininity. And I'll, I'll give you an, uh, you know, an anecdote. When Ritu and I met, which was in 2006, and then of course he became one of my closest friends. And uh, we met at a time when I was, of course, doing a lot of my work on you know, gender sexuality, sexuality, queer sexuality primarily. And he had made a film called Antur Mahul, uh, and which became very controversial. And uh, because he had brought sex and religion and talked about the hypocrisy of, uh, you know, uh, of sex and religious dogma into the film, people were very upset with him because it was quite explicitly expressed. And they started calling him Ritu Porno. Again, another example of how the word porn is seen as negative. So they would say Ritu Porno, you know, as Ritu Pornography. And I thought that film was entirely audacious and amazing. So, um, and what Ritu Porno did is that he's very interesting because he would make these audacious films uh, and everybody would be totally shocked. And then he would soften the blow with another slightly more conventional film, again, very well made. And then people would say, oh, you know, this is the Ritu Porno we like. So he never really abandoned his audience and, and said, oh, you don't understand my film and I'm not going to do anything. But he kept doing this, you know, he kept making these transgressive, slightly experimental films, and then he would soften the blow with another more conventional film. But his last four films, I think, are very important because he not only uh, brought himself to the center, but he also played the most stigmatized queer character, which is the, the feminine man. You know, when bo both Ritu and I were growing up together, we didn't know each other in Calcutta around the same time, you know? And uh, I, I experienced that being a boyish girl, you know, would always get you some taunt, you know, like, are you a girl, are you a boy? Ritu faced the same thing because he was a feminine boy. And after Ritu and I met, we were planning to do a film, which never got made, uh, about uh, a, a journal, Indian journalist making friends with a Kashmiri detainee. And it would be a film both about undoing a certain kind of heteronormativity, and at the same time, making people aware through the discovery of the journalist, what is happening in Kashmir. And we went to Bombay to try and cast for this film. And we, and everybody of course wants to act in a Ritu Porno film at that time. So everybody was coming. But the moment they heard what role it was, they would beg to be let off. Nobody wanted to play a, uh, you know, play a gay character in 2007 or whatever. Only two or three people agreed and they were all close friends of Ritu. But they were also reluctant to play the role of the feminine man. And then Ritu took that upon himself and played it with flamboyance and aplomb. He's not trying to pass off as a man who's this really desirable, uh, you know, masculine guy who uh, actually happens to be gay, you know, which is, you know, uh, why Brokeback Mountain can work for so many people. But it's with the feminine man that people have problems with and he played that. And he took it upon himself to play that role. And I think, and, and therein, somewhere making deeper this exploration of femininity, again, about which I have written, because he would uh, explore the excess of femininity, you know, something, and would be called naka for that. It's a Bengali word, uh, which you must be very familiar with in Kolkata, that, uh, you know, naka is always a very pejorative word. Uh, and he would often be called naka. You know, I mean, I, I have heard very progressive friends of mine say, oh, Ritu Porno is a naka. And, there was a huge, uh, you know, um, he was pretty much a lone warrior. He would get horrible uh, messages, you know, saying things like, I hope you die and you're distorted and you're twisted. And I, uh, even while he was alive, I once had an occasion to address an LGBT uh, constituency in, uh, in Calcutta. And I often said that I have never seen you people ever defend him. Even when that comedian Meer was making fun of him, was over and over again, people will come, you know, Meer would speak like him, you know, kind of uh, doing a mimicry of this feminine man. But none of the LGBT groups were really speaking up. So he became a kind of an LGBT hero in Calcutta after he died. 
And, uh, you know, and maybe a little before that, I mean, there were some people who were still visiting him and he, he was also open to meeting some people from the movement, but none of them, even if they didn't know him, should have actually written to say, this is not done. And it was left to Rituparnam to talk to Mead on his show and tell him that you're not mimicking just me. You are making fun of all the feminine men who are listening to this and feeling disempowered by what you're doing. And I think that was astounding that here was this man like a lone warrior and also a leading public intellectual for decades, when he, you know, people, he had a devoted constituency of people who were reading his column called First Person in the weekender called Ropar, you know, which Prutidin is to take out. Totally devoted, people were reading that. And he was discussing a range of topics in that. So he was a leading public intellectual and who was not scared of presenting to the public the feminine gay man, presenting to the public and you know, androgyny, and people don't get it because people are even now struggling to uh, understand uh, it all within the binaries of hetero-homo, masculine, feminine. The fact that you can be many things is still yet to become clear to people, you know. And I'm I'm sure that you know, with the new generation, it will be. But even with Ritu Porno, I hear people say constantly, "He wanted to be a woman. He never wanted to be a woman. He wanted to be feminine." He wanted to be a feminine man. He was very comfortable with that. So um, I think for a variety of reasons that he is this really iconic figure, I just wish that during his lifetime, the queer community had given him more solidarity and support. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I can imagine the way you would feel about that. But um, I think now there are so many of us who are watching his films and, you know, looking back at, at those interviews, even like growing up in Kolkata, even thinking of the kind of discourse um, that a public figure like Rituparno led to, which yes. was beautiful yeah. and so empowering. And, and I think he leaves behind a really strong legacy. So, I think you uh, would be very happy to hear that you say that. <laughs> And that's the beautiful note we ended our conversation with Dr. Shoini Ghosh on. This conversation definitely made us think a lot about the meaning that we assign to censorship, to queerness, and the ways in which we look at the impact of media and cinema in particular. It also left us with a lot of movie recommendations, so we do hope that you too will go check out some of the films that we spoke about. We release a new episode of this podcast series every Monday, so be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios, the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films.